The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome to um, the Pennsylvania Council of the Blind 22-2022 Conference and Convention. This um, session is um, hosted by the Pennsylvania Guide Dog Users and Supporters Group. Now I'd like to um, turn the program over to um, our PAGDIS president, Rose Martin. Rose Rosemary Martin is currently the second vice president of PCB. She joined PCB in 2010, served on the board, has worked with four PCB teams, was a board member of the past chapter Philadelphia Metro Council of the Blind, and is the current president of Pennsylvania Guide Dog Users and Supporters. Rose is a contract specialist for the Defense Logistics Agency and lives just outside of Philly with her seeing eye dog, Cato. She plays goalball and is learning to like running. Rose is an avid sports fan of all Philly teams and enjoys spending time with her friends and family, including 18 nieces and nephews. Rose, I'll turn it over to you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Marianne. Um, Welcome, everybody, to, as Marianne said, this, we are excited to be hosting the first session, um, PADDIS, of the 2022 conference. So today we're going to be talking about emergency preparedness and your guide dogs. So for this, we ha- we're going to have a panel discussion. I'm going to, so it'll be myself and Mike Rabbit, who is our fantastic uh, vice president of PADDIS. I'm going to do a quick intro of our three panelists from Guiding Eyes and Seeing Eye, and then I will let Mike jump in and give a little background since this entire program sort of was his idea uh, months ago. First, uh, David Johnson is the director of the instruction and training department, which encompasses the training of dogs, instruction of students, admissions, nur- nursing staff, and follow-up services for graduates. He has been with the organization since 1984, including eight years as a senior manager supervising teams of instructors. Johnson is a New Jersey native and holds a degree in animal care from Becker College in Massachusetts. And then we also, from the Seeing Eye, have Melissa Allman. Melissa joined the Seeing Eye in April of 2018 and serves as the Advocacy and Government Relations Specialist. Allman advocates for the access rights of Seeing Eye grads and other guide dog handlers by providing direct assistance to people who contact the Seeing Eye for guidance regarding access to public places, housing, or transportation. She also works to promote the rights of guide dog handlers in the legislative context and by engaging in education and outreach to the public. Allman has a multifaceted law and advocacy background with a primary focus on providing legal services to people experiencing housing discrimination. Allman holds a bachelor's degree from Georgetown University, a master's degree from Ohio State University, and a law degree from Temple University. She is currently working with a yellow Labrador Golden Cross seeing eye dog named Luna. And then from Guiding Eyes, we have 
as many of us are familiar with, Melissa Carney, our former Director of Outreach and Engagement here at PCB. So Melissa is currently the Community Outreach and Graduate Support Manager for Guiding Eyes for the Blind. In this role, she provides resources and individualized consultation to graduates, assisting in resolving access discrimination issues, advocates for advocates for accessibility modifications on campus and leads blindness and guide dog awareness presentations for the public. She is passionate about supporting a, a guide dog user's journey from application through dog retirement. Melissa um, graduated cum laude from Mount Holyoke College in 2019 with a bachelor's degree in English and psychology. She received her first Guiding Eyes dog in 2016. Melissa currently lives in New York. In her spare time, she enjoys taking long walks or, jo or jogs with her four-legged best friend, reading, socializing, and anything to do with music. She is an avid equestrian and skier. So that is a brief intro to our three fantastic panelists today. Um, I'm going to mute myself and let Mike Kravitz jump in and sort of get us started here. Thanks, Rose, and thanks to our panelists, and uh, thanks to our audience. Uh, my name is Mike Gravitt. I'm the, as Rose was saying, I'm the vice president of the PAGDU's uh, organization, and there's always a story uh, that leads to everything, and, and while we're here today, essentially began one year ago, uh, same day as I was actually doing a presentation at this very convention, uh, it was a Friday morning, I decided to go into the office. I'm lucky I, I can either work from home or go into downtown, but this day I decided to, to go into downtown Pittsburgh. It's about 6.30 a.m., really bright, sunny, the sun's coming up, brisk day, and I'm walking to the trolley from my house, I'm on the left side of a residential street and just kind of enjoying the moment because it's quiet and it's just a, it was a really good morning. I remembered like it was a minute ago. But suddenly as I'm walking, I'm being pushed sideways uncontrollably out into the side street and to the point where I just landed really hard on my arm, couldn't feel my arm elbow like I literally thought I had broken my arm and and I'm yelling stop 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 because I, I felt literally like a vehicle or something was pushing me into the street so finally uh, it ended up being a and I'm coming to my wits and this woman came up she goes I'm so sorry I didn't see you I didn't see you uh, she was backing out of her driveway and she says, yeah, when I came out of the house, I didn't see anyone coming up the hill. Uh, so I didn't know you were there. And I said, well, yeah, I probably started walking up the hill between the time you walked out of the house and the time you started backing up your vehicle. And, you know, I said, well, you know, just as a precaution, I want to get this on record. You know, I think I'm okay. Um, my arm feels a little hurt, but I think overall I'm fine. But I want to at least call the police 911 just to get everything on record. And she was okay. She she stood there, and the police came. The ambulance came. Uh, you know, I, I told them my story. I have no idea what she told them because I couldn't hear what she was saying to them. But what we couldn't 
resolve is how, if a vehicle was on my left side pushing me onto the side street, how did my dog not get crushed between me and the dog? And it was just so many things that didn't make sense about the situation and no cameras, nothing. Uh, so you know, I got to really thinking about a lot of things after that incident. You know, well, well, how come I don't have film of this? How come I can't do my own surveillance? What do I do if my dog really was to get into a major incident? You know, how do, wh what do I do? What's my game plan? What if I'm incapacitated? What, what, you know, what happens? What if this? What if that? And I realized how many things I didn't have an answer to. And it wasn't until later on in this whole incident that it took me over getting the trauma, overcoming the trauma, and replaying the incident in my head enough that I finally realized that what it wasn't, it wasn't the vehicle pushing me into the street. It was my dog, <laughs> literally shoving me out of the way, um, which I didn't even think was physically possible. But you know, I talked to a couple of trainers and realized that that's not actually not an unheard of situation that that a dog can do that. And and she goes not to bust your bubble, but she was probably looking out for her own self instead of you, and you were just along for the ride. And I'm like, well, I'm okay with that. So, but but either way, that's that's a long way of saying that's essentially how we ended up here today. Is uh, that incident and so many what ifs came into my mind. I'm, I'm like, okay, what do we do? about these what-ifs. So uh, we put this together. Uh, we attempted it a few months ago, um, had some technical issues, so we're trying it again today. And, and I definitely just want to thank everyone that's here. And, and I know I, for one, very much look forward to hearing uh, you know, what, what kind of advice and uh, that each of you have. So um, am I supposed to just pick one at random to go first? Or do you guys just want to kind of do a free-for-all? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think you could sort of start with some of your questions, maybe your first question, Mike, and then we can kind of um, okay. switch back and forth, let our all of our panelists have a chance. And if anybody's not comfortable or um, doesn't want to answer a question, you know, you could pass it on to each other, um, if that makes okay. sense. Well, I guess I first want to know, what, what do each of you – teach or your advice is, you know, step one, if the unexpected happens, uh, I know it's very generic, but, but how do you advise graduates uh, you know, to deal with this? And, and by the way, I forgot to mention, I am a Guiding Eyes graduate, so I've been a guide dog user 17 years, and I'm on my uh, second dog. My first dog, Rick, had it for, for 11 years, and my current dog I've used for uh, for six years, so... Uh, you know, some of us are experienced, but still, we run into these things we don't know what to do. So, what, what is your first uh, piece of advice if you get into the unexpected? Oh, Mike, this is this is Dave speaking, uh, Dave Johnson. And uh, first, I want to sort of address your issue and say how sorry I am to hear that that happened to you. Um, but it happens, and uh, know that you're not alone out there, and that traveling with a guide dog is not a guarantee ever that a car is not going to tag you. Um, it's, you know, it's that extra level of protection that you have. And that's why a lot of people choose to travel with a dog. But um, we teach our, our students here at the CNI that no matter what, if you are in the crosshairs at the wrong time and the driver doesn't see you, um, you and the dog 
can be in jeopardy, no matter what. Um, there's all kinds of factors on accidents today. One of the things uh, that we witness uh, most frequently is cars backing up um, are often a one of the key uh, problems we see. Um, so we, we work on that in training and we actually, part of our training sessions here at the CNI in training the dogs involve cars backing out of driveways. Um, if you are in a certain spot behind a vehicle or in front of a vehicle and the speed is above the dog's judgment speed or the driver is not paying attention, you're at risk. Um, and in most cases, statistically, the dog is not hit. Um, the, the information that you got about the dog pushing you out of the way, I, I, I can't, having not you know, witnessed it myself either, I, I, I can only guess what might have happened. Um, but we teach our dogs to back up in a straight line in those circumstances. And frequently, the person's moving fast enough that the dog will back up fast and there's a delay on the person, and that's why they may have impact from the, from the vehicle. Um, but regardless of that, there's this shock and awe that happened and emotion that happens to everybody at that time. And I think the question about, you know, being prepared for these situations is, is kind of broad, um, only that because there's all kinds of different disasters and emergencies that can happen. We can plan for uh, weather, uh, tornado, well, maybe not a tornado, but we can plan for hurricanes if we know they're down the road and coming our way. We can start gathering our needs together. But when we have an accident such as you experienced, um, you, you probably need to have identification on you and need to call somebody. You're going to want to talk to somebody who can comfort you and help you. Um, in most cases, um, the police come out and Melissa just whispered in my ear and it's so darn true. And I wish it wasn't true, but they never want to believe a person who can't see. You couldn't possibly know what happened. You couldn't see it. Sure as heck you could know you what happened. You got hit and you shouldn't have been. And that's what I have reminded police all the time. We live in a civilized society where this stuff is not supposed to happen. You're not supposed to drive over people in the street. Um, accidents do happen, but uh, the, the, the dogs are our backup for, for those cases. So in, in those cases where, such as you had, you, were, you really need to be able to, to call for help um, and get medical help if you need it. Have your dog assessed by somebody and usually, in my opinion, that requires vision. I like to have to tell people that every dog should see a vet after an accident, any kind of accident or injury. Um, many people will palpate their dog and put their hands over them if it's in the case of a dog attack or something like that. And they say they can feel something wet or sticky. Well, you're, you don't necessarily know whether it's saliva or, or blood unless somebody tells you and and puncture wounds have a way of getting hidden underneath fur and such. So I advise a, a veterinary consultation, no matter what, on, on any kind of accident. But as far as the human's needs, 
I think it's great if everybody has it in mind of somebody that they can call to come to their aid in these events, um, because you really need somebody to talk to who you know. Um, the, the police can be polite and, and uh, comforting, but there's nothing like having a friend. Do you have anything else, Melissa, that you would? Yeah, I would say that if you do happen to have a witness to something like that, it can be very helpful to try to engage with that witness, see if they can provide you with any meaningful information about what happened and ask them if they're willing to stay until the police get there because that, you know, if you've got that sighted witness, that can definitely, um, that can definitely make a difference. So, um, and, and, and I understand that we don't always have that. That, that's, that's what I would add also. I'm very sorry it happened and I can tell you um, that it's it's not a it's not a good place to be and I and I want to just say um, as somebody without you know without belaboring this as somebody who has been there I feel very fortunate to have a fantastic dog who did her job and I also want to give a shout out to all of us out there who um, have had an experience like this but that we we get up in the morning you know, the next day, that day, or whenever we're, we're ready, we assess with our school. And I think that's also very important. Reach out to your school like you did, um, Mike, to, to get the situation assessed, your dog's work in traffic assessed, your own handling. So that's one piece I would offer. And I also just want to give a shout out to all of us who get up and do it again. Yeah. We, we go out and we work our dogs again and again and again knowing what did happen and knowing that it could happen again but but that's just what we do because that is the people that we are as guide dog handlers who are trying to be as resilient as we can be so yeah. that's and my don't forget the dogs themselves yeah they're resilient. No, no, no there's no forgetting yeah. that yeah. <laughs> yeah you know they're because they're, yeah, and that's, yeah. that's to dave's point about making sure that your dog gets assessed um and, and that's one of the one of the complicating pieces to this though is if you are not okay um and can't see to that yourself you may want to you want to communicate to your first responder the police or the the ems staff whoever is there and say look this is something i need to be able to somehow get my dog to a veterinarian can you help with that and if they can that's great and if they can't then I think it's important to have the contact of somebody who can come retrieve your dog, someone that you trust and, and get your dog to the veterinarian and then communicate to you what happened there. If you're not in a physical position to do that yourself, I understand that not everyone has a solid support system. I get that. But if you can just find someone that you trust enough to, to help with that, that's a really good thing. And I would add to you just ring my bell on that, Melissa. I would add that, you know, if you, heaven forbid, you're knocked unconscious uh, or can't respond to anybody about your dog, it is not, and I repeat that, it is not the worst thing in the world. If the police take your dog or animal control takes your dog, they know your dog is in harness that it's an important trained dog and they take great care. And I can tell you that they wake me in the middle of the night, you know, or any of my staff, our dogs are all chipped. 
the CNI's name is on the microchip in addition to the grad. So if the grad can't answer, then then we get a call and we will tell them, hold the dog, we'll come get the dog or where is find out where the grad is. And then we 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 go into action mode trying to help make sure the dog gets to the right place. But you want the dog in a safe place. That's for darn sure. Right. And but I, I agree with Dave that the people get really, really upset when they hear about animal control um, taking any responsibility for, for their dog. But that's not that you don't want your dog on the street. Right. And, and, yeah, and this right. is something that can be a very good thing. So, yeah. Pick your poison in that situation. So yeah. So. Well, and and the poison there too is is not always as bad as you think. A lot of right. Times. Exactly. exactly. The and, animal and, and, control and, officer calls me and goes, "Oh, he's not in the kennel. He's in my house. I wasn't oh, letting that dog go right. to the kennel." Right. So, oh, that's yeah, they know. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 that's just. And I'm sorry. I'm not. Uh, I know Melissa Carney also wants to speak, but yes. One, one thing I'm unfortunately noticing is that people aren't not assuming. Or, or understanding that I'm blind or that she's a guide dog anymore. I think so many people are, quote-unquote, using service animals that really aren't service animals. It, it, that that um, the assumption doesn't always default to blindness anymore like it used to. Like five years ago, I didn't have any issues. People knew. Now, they don't. So, uh, so yeah, anyway, you can communicate to an officer or some people like, you know, the first thing you say, I am blind. She is a guide dog. So, uh, and hopefully they look at the harnesses. I'm not sure how profound the word blind is on the harness, but. Uh, it, you don't, you don't need to have anything written on the harness to know it, it's for a guide. I mean, it, it is so universally known. You'd have to be a pretty dim bulb to not know it's for guiding. <laughs> yeah, I, I would hope so. Uh, this is Melissa from Guiding Eyes. Dave and Melissa, I think you covered that beautifully. And I don't know too much to add from the angle of when this type of situation actually occurs. But just as far as taking steps and putting ourselves at ease before we run into these situations, because we don't ever know what we'll encounter, um, I would just recommend a couple a couple of things to keep in mind. These are steps that you can take when you ultimately have control and before you lose it, because in those situations that we're talking about, you're going you're operating off of instinct. Things are happening too fast for you to really keep track of. There's it's it's very busy. You could be in pain. You could be unconscious. You're worried about your dog. You're worried about yourself. There's so much going on. So it's always good to think about what can we do at the very least to prepare for the unexpected. So what I would recommend for guide dog users is to learn as much information as you can beforehand about the emergency procedures in your community. Know your support system. Uh, For example, where is your closest firehouse? Where is your ambulance service based out of? Do they have protocols for or knowledge of the transportation of guide dogs? Um, so just try to build those relationships with the first response services in your community and advocate for your needs beforehand. Plan out a solution, educate while you are able. Um, some communities even have accessibility or disability committees 
or advisory boards that you can work with to make sure that your first or that your emergency response services are educated. Um, you can also contact your regional ADA center for guidance. As Melissa and David pointed out, your harness is going to be the most clear identifier. So you can't be more obvious with, um, with, with showing someone that it is a guide dog and that it does need special care. But what you can do is make sure your emergency contacts are identifiable, even if you can't speak. Um, so start thinking about people that could advocate on your behalf, could advocate for your dog, make decisions regarding veterinary care, um, even someone who might be able to relieve your dog at the hospital for you, bring them home for a period of time, um, and understand that you may not be able to uphold the basic care of your dog and you may need that help, as has already been said. And it's also important not only to have one emergency contact, but to have at least two. That way, if one person isn't available, you always have backup, 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 backup. That's always the key here, too, is having options to feel supported. Um, so this person should be familiar with how to care for a dog. Again, any of their scheduling needs. Um, what you can also do, let's say you are stuck in the hospital, um, you're able to keep your dog with you, but you're being evaluated. Whenever you go out for a lengthy walk, it's always a good idea to have a survival kit or an emergency kit packed up. So that could just be a small bag. You might carry water in there anyway when you're out on a walk with your dog, but just have, um, you know, some items for you, change of clothes, any medicine that you might need. Um, but then also some things for your dog. So it's water, a dog bowl, some um, individually bagged meals in case you're stuck at the hospital. Um, this could also have a written list, a printed piece of paper that has your emergency contact information listed on there. Um, it could have an extra leash for your dog, um, a cane that you might need, just anything that you could think of that might benefit you and your dog in that situation if someone's um, attempting to help you. Um, another suggestion I have is to utilize your phone. You can actually create a note on your locked screen mentioning that you are blind and have a guide dog if you're unable to communicate for yourself. And that could also include a brief description of what the dog looks like, um, any basic care needs. Um, you can also list emergency contacts as part of that note and a condensed set of instructions on what to do with your dog, information on the local vet hospital if the dog has to be transported there. But that way, if they find the phone, if they find your phone, they can see this information on the lock screen and have a better idea of how to assist you, how to assist your dog, if for whatever reason they are not educated in the protocol. Thank you. And uh, an alternate to that that I've, um, I've used is the medic alert bracelet. Emergency personnel trained to look for those. Uh, and with the bracelet, there's a, an identification number they put in that information into their system, and it, it'll bring up any notes that that you've uh, you've told MedicAlert. So, for example, I've told MedicAlert, you know, I am blind. And basically, everything you just said, Melissa, all that kind of information, my dog's name, uh, emergency contacts, and then and it's uh, fairly freeform. You can with those bracelets, you can assign pretty much all the information you want to, and, and this way, you know, if your phone is uh, 
damaged in an accident, for example, the the bracelet on your it's just a very unintrusive un, un bracelet you wear on your wrist. So, um, or even put a card, you can put a medical alert card in your in your wallet. So, so those are yeah very very good suggestions. My next question is, and you brought up about fostering relationships with emergency personnel ahead of time uh, proactively. I tried doing that. Uh, myself, and uh, while I have not taken the, the next step of, of bringing in an organization, I basically got nowhere <laughs> other than, uh, well, we're trained uh, to take care of the people first. If we have the resources, then we'll, we'll take care of the pet, the pet, the pet. And I kept trying to correct the people I was speaking to. Well, I'm not speaking of a pet. I'm speaking of a service animal. Well, to us, it's the same thing. It's an animal, you know. So um, is there a support structure in place that if we do want to promote relationships with local emergency personnel that the schools can assist with? Or do you simply advise everyone to work with groups such as ACB or PCB or local organizations? This is Melissa Allman. Um, So I want to just I can tell you what we do here. Um, we have been asked on several occasions to do presentations to local emergency personnel, like um, different EMS squads in the surrounding area in New Jersey. And we are going to actually be presenting on guide dog related issues at a conference in November. It's the National Emergency Medical Services Conference. So what we're going to be doing in our presentation is talking about a few things. We're going to be talking about etiquette concerning interactions, appropriate communications, appropriate ways to communicate with guide dog handlers and people who are blind, you know, in terms of offering assistance, asking what kind of assistance is needed, letting the person know if you're going to touch them and what you're going to do. Um, if you're going to leave the room and you're in a, a care, a, a hospital setting, let them know you're leaving, all sorts of things that come up. But also with respect to the dog, making sure that these personnel know that you do have the right to have your dog accompany you in the ambulance or to be with you in the hospital setting. But at the same time, that you are fully responsible for maintaining control over and the care of your dog. And so letting them know who to contact if you can't do that. So this is a presentation that we're going to be doing at a, at a national level conference, which is happens to be taking place here in New Jersey. And we're going to provide them with, with resources and, and some PowerPoint slides that we think will be helpful. And so I think one thing the other schools can do or graduates could do is reach out to their schools and say, hey, we need some education in our community in this area, what, what, how can you help us? Can you, can you do a presentation? Can you do trainings? That sort of thing. That's, so that's what we do here. And that effort still needs to continue. Obviously um, there are quite a few municipalities all over the country that could probably use this information. And um, you know, we do have some information on our website, but this education is an ongoing process. Right. It's so decentralized. You know, so every community is different, different standards, different hierarchies. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's uh, 
allowed to maneuver generically. Uh, Melissa Carney, do you have any any additional comments on that? Of course, yes. So we operate pretty and in, in a pretty similar way. So if graduates are having issues communicating with their emergency medical services or or if they want to contact the police department and don't feel comfortable doing that on their own, if they're just trying to learn the chain of command, that's what we, um, we actually have a new initiative at Guiding Eyes called the Client Experience Team, in which all of our services on that team rely on or uh, are focused on supporting the client. So if our graduates were to reach out to that team, one of us would work with them, either call with them to find out how they can present, do the presentation on their behalf, whatever their need is. We want them to feel comfortable advocating on their own and want to teach them to do so, but we will also advocate for them. Um, and we actually have uh, a couple presentations coming up, one of which is with the Yorktown Heights Police Department, and we hope that that will carry over to all of Westchester County and continue to expand from there, just because we think it's important to start with our local partners first and move beyond that. Um, and this initiative was actually sparked several years ago by one of our graduates who was previously an EMT before losing her sight. And she's been a wonderful advocate, has come to Guiding Eyes many times to prepare presentations for our graduate community. We actually have a 911 primer that's publicly available on our website that she helped us put together. So that's a public resource for our graduates. And we continue to offer both uh, public and individualized support, whatever need arises. That's great. And and I would challenge schools to, if possible, even have a video pre-recorded that's available. Not necessarily something that one could search for on Google, but someone like myself could, could work with you. And even if you're not available necessarily to do a, a presentation by Zoom, uh, that that perhaps we, we we could have a link we could we could provide and say you know can you spend fifteen twenty minutes reviewing this and uh, excuse me Mike this is Melissa Allman again and I was just wondering if we could have a link to the nine one one primer because that sounds like a a document exactly. that would be worth reviewing exactly yeah absolutely yeah. yeah and if we could supplement that with like one of these presentations that you do I don't know if you do them all in person or if any of them are done via zoom um but if one could be recorded and just link to that page as a like a, a private link yeah. you know there again nothing that could be publicly available just something that could be given upon request um i feel like that would that would be very useful it's a fantastic idea i like it melissa oh, party could you put that um link in the chat for everybody Yep. Yep. Give me one second. Let me just pull it up. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, good, good idea. Um, Mike, while she's doing that, I was just going to add, this is Rose. Um, I did ask, so I have, my dad was a Philly firefighter for like 30 some years. And my brother-in-law is currently, and he also works with FEMA. So I asked him a few months ago when this came up, uh, my brother-in-law, like given all the updated guidelines, do you remember getting any, hearing anything like that in training? Or, you know, because he does teach some classes in the academy and stuff. Um, I think he said he didn't remember anything official, but he knows he's seen, like, things come up. But he also just obviously is more aware. So he's like, well, I would know if it was a service dog or just 
you know, a pet or, you know, I've heard of people like they've said kind of, you know, if the person can't handle them, you know, another policeman or somebody official taking them. Um, but I'm going to follow up with him as well because he was going to look into it more because I was just curious, like on the national and kind of city level around here, if anything's been provided. But I think all these resources that you guys are talking about is, are awesome. Right. I think, like I said earlier, there's so much decentralization um, and autonomy from state to state, county to county, municipality to municipality, that it, 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 it's, it's probably not a, a standard that's ever um, enforceable, per se. But you know, educate, at least educating one municipality at a time, that, that, that's better than doing nothing. So this is Melissa Allman again. While we were talking about resources, um, there are a couple of resources that might be worth checking out because they they cover not only things that we should do as handlers, but they also provide some information to, um, you know, emergency shelters and things of that nature about their responsibilities and our rights to be accompanied by our dogs in situations where there might be a natural disaster and we need to, to be in a shelter setting for that reason. And so um, one thing you can do is go to the um, GDUI, Guide Dog Users Inc. website. They have some emergency information on there. And a way to link to that, if you want to, is to look at our website. If you go to seeingeye.org slash access, and then you go to emergency preparedness. We we have a link to that. And then another another place to check is the uh, we were talking a little earlier about regional ADA centers. Well, the National ADA Center has some useful emergency resources on service animals as well. Okay, that's um, the ADA.gov. Uh, no, it's um, the, it's the National ADA Center's website. National ADA. Okay. Okay. If you have a minute to post those, in the the, chat we don't, as well. there's no chat. No, the, the chat is disabled in, in oh. this webinar. Yeah, yeah I was just wrong. Thank you. I was just spoken, looking for it. From, yeah, spoken <laughs> Sorry, from Melissa, Hunter. that was bad on me. No, that's okay. I was like, is it just me? I'm looking for it and I can't see it. <laughs> it's, it's usually was, pretty distracting when people are trying to listen and, and screen readers keep popping up, right? Yeah. With chat. So. Sure. So, uh, Dave could, and Melissa, I can email it to you offline, and I'd be happy to distribute it to anyone else who's interested. Thanks. That would be great. Thank you. You're welcome. We touched on this point earlier as well, but if something does happen, and once you've overcome the immediate issue, uh, long term, you know, next steps. You know, and, and for me, you know, obviously, I had to mentally get myself back into uh, a centered frame of mind before I could expect my dog to, because our dogs feed off of our own psychology. So if I'm still nervous, my dog is still nervous. So I knew that was very important for me to to ensure that I was ready to work before I could expect my dog to. But the other thing I did was um, I reached out. I think it makes sense. The schools are there for for a reason, I reached out and and arranged for, even though I had just finished with working with a guiding ice trainer literally the day before, 
for her to <laughs> come back again to uh, to do a follow up and, and work with us. And we we even um, did a couple of uh, of traffic check um, uh, practice sessions just to see how my dog did. You know, just to, just to get the expert follow up and make sure my dog didn't look like she was having a a nervous breakdown or something as we were working. So everything thankfully was good. We bounced back. It could have been worse. But what what do you recommend um, other than perhaps what I've just mentioned as far as if something does happen, everything is settled, what what do you do? What do you, what should be your next uh, two or three steps? I, I would really, I think you did the right thing and got on the horn to the school right away. That That's number one. You, you've, you've already made sure your dog's healthy. You call the school um, frequently. We find that a quick evaluation is not always good. Um, dogs can be oversensitized from something like that, um, or they can be at the height of their game and be really, really, really safe and watching cars like crazy. Regardless of which way they go, you, you have to be attentive to the way the dog's feeling and have somebody evaluate the dog in, in this day and age, I find that, uh, and we're, we're like available 24-7 to our grads, but people tend not to tell us sometimes, and it just blows me away. I, I beg people, you know, let us know so we can help you and help your dog. And a lot of people try and get on the horse. I think for their, you know, maybe, Melissa, you want to speak to this too. Everybody feels differently. Some people feel like they need to go right back out and, and regain their edge and work the dog. And that might be good for the person or not good for the person. And it might be good for the dog or not good for the dog. But if, if you've had an incident that could have caused some kind of physical or mental trauma to the dog, the dog should be evaluated. But, but the person's a whole other, you know, that, that's a big deal. It's a lot of trauma for the human. So this is Melissa, and I, I will agree with everything that Dave said. And so once I knew that my dog was okay and that she was not afraid of traffic or whatever, I felt very strongly and probably to excess that I needed to get right back out there um, because, and I made myself do more stuff than I, you know, than I would necessarily do on an average day at first, because I was so afraid that if I didn't, then I never would again. And I just could not take that risk given how much I value the guide dog lifestyle. So I probably went a little overboard with that and it was not easy at first. So the other, the other thing I would say is as you're working through something like that, be extremely gentle and patient with yourself and your dog. Um, because you don't know what is going to affect you um, months and months, like it could be months later and something happens and it just triggers this kind of um, mental space that you're not mm -hmm. expecting. The other, the other thing that I would say is that this isn't just about these sorts of pedestrian um, and vehicular experiences, that the same can be said for aggressive dog encounters. So that, that also, as you know, can create an emergency situation where either the dog or the person is at risk of injury or does get injured. And, th and those are situations also where it is so super important to reach out to your school because you don't know how your dog might be affected by, by being a victim of 
an aggressive encounter with another dog. So that's that's what I would say about that as well. And I think that there is probably a fair amount of us um, drivers and pedestrians that suffer, would suffer from PTSD from having accidents. And, um, you know, I, Melissa talked about how close all cars seem to her all of a sudden. And I related that 20 some years ago, I got rear ended two or three times in a matter of months by inattentive drivers. And, and on the very, on the third time I got rear ended, it was, dark it was nighttime i was sitting in a line of traffic and a young woman came around a curve was playing with her radio instead of watching what she was doing and she you know was coming fast and she skidded and hit the brakes for a really long time and you know what that sounds like the brakes chirping and all that nonsense and i it was months before i would I, I, before i could stop myself from involuntarily jumping or my body stopped itself, I guess, from involuntarily jumping every time I heard that little bit of a chirp or the same type of sound. So so traffic sounds become accentuated to a handler who's had a, a close call or it you, you don't even have to have an accident. It can just be something that, that's traumatic to you that that, you know, deep in the brain that's remembered. Or if you have a, an aggressive dog encounter, because I had one, and luckily there was no there was no actual contact made with my dog, but it was very close, and we weren't totally sure. Um, but but I, for a long time, when there would be a dog up ahead, or I would hear a dog, I would sort of go on the defensive. And I think um, one of the things we have to work on too is moderating our tone with the public when we engage with them about the dog encounters or potential dog encounters, because as frustrating as the public can be, we really do need them to work with us. And if we sound angry and defensive, because understandably we are either because of what we're experiencing now or because of a traumatic experience that we have had that's affecting us now, um, we still need to remember that they don't know that they may be clueless. And if we can maintain a, a civil tone with the public for as long as possible, if, unless someone's just not listening to us at all, we may get farther with educating and with getting information that we need. If, if unfortunately there is an encounter with the dogs. So that's, that's um, one thing I would suggest. And another thing I really, really highly recommend is that we all have, our dog's vaccination information on our phone somewhere or um, on our person if we're not into having it technologically or in our dog's pouch so that if there is a situation that pops up and we are asked for it by first responders or by an owner of a dog that has engaged with our dog that we can we can also be cooperative in sharing that information and providing it. Good idea. And just a couple more things to add. I would, this is Melissa. I would say having your community support is also very important. So surrounding yourself with other graduates who have maybe been through similar circumstances, whether that's a staff member who happens to be a graduate at your school, who you're reaching out to for support, friends that you have in the community, if you want to be connected with other people to ask for that. But sometimes it helps just having that moral support from people who have been through it. There's a lot of power in community. There's a lot of strength in community. 
Um, and just a couple, a couple other things to add. I just want to reiterate because I, I can't stress this enough, and I don't think any of us can. You know your dog best. You are the expert on your own dog. So anything that's different from your dog's normal, you should pick up on pretty quickly. Um, so for example, if your dog is breathing faster or harder than normal, is, are, do they have any painful areas? Are they licking or shaking more than usual? Those might be signs of stress. So you just want to be diligent as the one who's going to pick up on those little things, especially right after the incident and just in the future as you continue to work them. Um, there are so many medical issues that a dog can have and so many circumstances that affect how we work together across the board. So that's why it's so important to be diligent and making sure that you're following your instincts um, and you're trusting your dog to tell you what's going on. And as far as returning to work, uh, I just want to again reiterate what's been said and that be mindful that your emotions, what you're feeling, um, sorry about that, but some of the emotions that you're feeling may very well be shared or at least noticed by your dog. Um, and they may not show, to, show dramatic outward signs of stress, but that's why it's even more uh, important to give them the proper attention and to, this was said earlier, be gentle with them, give extra support, whether it's verbal praise, physical praise, or food reward. Make working a positive experience for both of you, something that you enjoy, so you can move beyond that stress and beyond that trauma that you've experienced. Um, and it might even come across, maybe it's not in work. Maybe your dog isn't playing as much as he or she normally would. Maybe they're licking their paws, as was said earlier. It could, maybe they don't have the same appetite. And if you have a Labrador retriever, you know, that's a big no-no and a big cause for concern. <laughs> um, so just be mindful of all of those signs. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with your dog and always utilize your community when looking for that support. This is Melissa Allman. Um, I think a lot of good points were made. I, I do want to say something about community. I think I agree that we are we can support each other. There is power in community. Um, sometimes it just helps to know that somebody has been through something, even though not identical, but has had some of, some of the same experiences that you have, and and to to understand a little bit about what worked for them. But I will caution against doing that in a way that that causes you to get too sucked into all that can occur on social media. I'm not saying that social media is necessarily always a bad way to find power in community. But one of the things that can be troubling is when you're hearing so many voices and you're getting so many opinions about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. I just encourage people to be um, mindful of how to manage that, and also not to substitute social media for contact with the school yes. about issues where Amen. the school can give um, can give guidance and help. Because Amen. what can be very concerning is when you know that you as the school 
as the advocacy specialist in my case, or as director of instruction and training in Dave's case, you know the school would have something to offer. And then you learn instead that people have been focusing on um, getting 10,000 different opinions on social media. It can really cause a lot of confusion. So I would just recommend managing that, being mindful of it and not using social media instead of the school where the school can be of value. Right. And I think in that case, you end up getting a lot of unsolicited advice. I think it's instinct to want to go tell the world, hey, this just happened to me. And then that quickly evolves in, well, you should do this, you should do this, even though that wasn't necessarily your intent to get advice to begin with. <laughs> so, um, And then you become yeah. more overwhelmed than you originally were in the first place. So I, I completely agree with that 100%. Yeah. And, and I think to myself too, you know, uh, like Dave, David was saying, it you know, blows his mind why one wouldn't contact their school when a situation like this happens. Uh, you, you know, I wonder, the first thing that comes to my mind is, well, maybe the graduate feels like they did something wrong to cause the incident, even though they may have had nothing at all to do with it. They could have been doing everything. The dog could have been doing everything perfectly. And even if you hadn't, I cannot imagine a school being critical of a graduate in a situation like that, regardless of what went right or what went wrong. You know, I think it's very important to to evaluate that. So I don't know if you have any follow up. Mike, we just oh, we're running out of time. Now. Yeah, we got like yeah. two minutes, guys. Unfortunately, oh. I would love oh. to keep this going, but we That's can. Okay. I would say if anybody has. Any, um, you know, last minute thoughts or things that we might have missed um, in kind of what we covered today? Yeah, and I had a couple I was going to throw out real quickly, and then we could just maybe do one minute minute each of each of our speakers and and call it a day. Um, Two ideas. One, you'd be surprised that a a veterinarian's willingness to give you the direct cell phone number. Um, If you need need a veterinarian, you, you could always have... Your vet, maybe even a veterinarian they know, a couple veterinarians you just call directly if something happens. Um, and a lot of veterinarians also have emergency uh, phone lines. But I feel it's just as important to proactively have a plan in place with your veterinarian just as much as with others in your, in your community um, in case your dog does need medical care and needs it quickly. Um, and secondly, and, and as a... <clears throat> surveillance, I, you know, it, it was bugging me. I'm like, in this day and age, how come when something happens, why does it need to be my word against anyone's when mm-hmm. we can have video? And so um, I know a lot of people would have the ability to use their phones as a as a video camera, but I, I actually chose to purchase um, a GoPro uh, through the advice of another fellow Guiding Eyes graduate, uh, they're voice activated. Uh, they're, they interact really well with my iPhone app. It's, uh, I'd say, 98% accessible. Uh, so I've had some some fairly good success uh, with just attaching a GoPro to my uh, belt buckle and then start recording. Every time I go out now, I'm, I'm recording everything. And what was even more fascinating about that is when I came home and showed it to... Uh, uh, my my stepson, he goes, you should put that up on YouTube. People may actually like to watch that. <laughs> and, and so I've actually started to post a, a couple of these on YouTube. So if you search for 
the adventures of Mike and Lola on YouTube, you'll find a few. But what, it's it's neat because you can see where we're walking, but in the bottom left corner, you can you can see my dog working. Um, you can see what she's doing. So it, it's kind of had a double a dual purpose. So I'd advise that, or just finding some way to begin doing video, your own video surveillance. Uh, so those are my couple ideas, and we'll just do uh, one more very quick round robin. We'll start with Melissa Carney. Well, first of all, I think uh, another thing to keep in mind, and that's why I, I do think the GoPro is a great idea in some circumstances. It's really difficult, and we've kind of touched on this throughout the presentation, but oftentimes if you're filing a report with the police um, after the fact, let's say in the case of a dog attack or if animal control is involved, they're all asking for witnesses, witnesses, witnesses. They do not take the word of a blind person seriously. They want proof. They want either a mark on your dog and, and a picture of physical harm, or they want a witness. So in having that surveillance, especially let's say you've, you've been attacked in a certain area and you know that there are some aggressive dogs in your neighborhood, if you can have that support and have that surveillance, and of course that's you know up to your budgeting needs, but it's a great way that we can look out for ourselves and continue to act independently and look out for our safety. So Mike, I think that's a great idea and I'm happy that you've kind of pioneered that in our graduate community. But yeah, I just, I just want to commend you for, for taking those steps. And um, yeah, yeah, that's my thoughts on that. And it's just real quickly, it's really amazing how much more comfortable I am just having that. It's like Linus in a security blanket, I guess. Just having right. that extra layer of, of, of comfort is really nice. So uh, we'll go with uh, David slash Melissa from Seeing Eye. One more final note. Um, yeah, I think what I'd like to end with is making some lemonade out of the lemons because it's a pretty ugly thing that we're talking about as I as I think about this. It's really sad. And just everybody remember that there's way more good stuff out there happening than bad stuff. And, um, you know, the dogs are there to protect you. And we all all decide to travel with dogs for that reason. And uh, we're talking about a minority of things that happen, not something that happens every day. And that's a that's a really good thing. Um, but a lot of good things were covered here today. A, a lot of good things. There's a lot of resources out there. And Melissa. Yeah. Sorry, Dave. Um, I, I want to say one thing. We've talked a lot about inattentive drivers. We've talked about inattentive dog owners and they're real and they're out there. But we also have an obligation to be present, to be aware of what we are doing, to be as aware as we can of traffic. We're going to make mistakes, um, and so will our dogs, but to be aware of what our dog is telling us. If we, as guide dog handlers, are messing around with our phones, I can't tell you how many people have called me at intersections, and I say, why don't we talk when you're not at an intersection? We also have that obligation because our dogs can only provide us with the, the safety measures that, that they're able to do if we're paying attention, if we're stepping ahead of our dogs or rushing our dogs, when maybe the dog sees a car that we're not aware of because we're on our phone or playing with our GPS, we are also accountable and responsible. So just want to put that out there as well. That's a good point. They're not self-driving dogs, right? So. 
<laughs> she just ruined my lemonade. Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> there's some sugar packets sitting right over there. So uh, let's grab a couple. No, but thank you all for everything, uh, for being here. And as far as being, as Melissa's saying, being present, just you being present here, sharing your ideas with us and the people listening, being present and, and hopefully gathering. If you just attain one good piece of advice out of this past hour, then I feel like that we've been uh, successful. So thank, thanks to everyone. I Rose, I'll turn it back. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Mike, Melissa, Melissa, Dave. Thank you guys so much. This was, I completely agree. Um, you know, it's always a difficult, difficult conversation to have, but I think it's important. And I think, you know, just being aware and even having a few thoughts of preparation can always make a huge difference, but we are fortunate. And like Dave said, there is more good than bad as my dog was just, I had to mute because he was just running and dreaming uh, in his sleep and such. So made me smile um, really quickly. Um, we do have a giveaway for an attendee. So I scrolled down um, in the attendee list. I picked the number four because my Phillies need four more wins for a world series championship. So number four is Elaine. So Elaine, I'll get in touch with you. I believe Elaine is in our practice group, if that's the same Elaine. So I will get in touch with you to find out your preference for a Chewy or Amazon Prime gift card. Um, and I, we, I'll we, uh, i make sure that those resources get shared um, between you all. But I, we are all on an email thread. So, But if not, um, we can facilitate that as well. And I, I know... We Pagdas would love some to gather those same resources and share with our community. Um, for anybody listening through ACB Media or Facebook Live that's interested in Pennsylvania Guide Dog users and who we are, um, you do not have to be a Pennsylvania resident to be a part of our group. Marianne and Will are in Florida. So you can reach out if you're interested in learning more about us. Contact the PCB office and they can get you my contact info. I think that is it for this session. Again, I wish we could have gone on, but I think this was fantastic. And I thank you all for sticking with us in the rescheduling and making this happen. I think it was extremely important. Thank you so much again. And Mike, great job. Thank you. Thank you, Mike and Rose. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. Hello, I'm Chris Hunsinger. I'm the president of PCB and I call this 2022 PCV Conference and Convention to order. Now let's hear the Pledge of Allegiance, and you can all recite along with these kids from Ohio. I want to welcome everybody to our conference, both those on Zoom and those on ACB Media 8. We know that we have 130 registrants for the conference, and we hope there are even more of you listening elsewhere by using your, your speakers or whatever method you chose. 
I hope you'll have a good conference. And I now want to turn this over to our um, our our Jackie Wissinger, who is our chaplain, to have a moment of prayer and a uh, the necrology for those who have passed on in the past year. Well, I would like to welcome everybody to the conference as well. As you know, instead of a vocal prayer, we just take a couple of moments of silence to perhaps think about PCB, think about the goals of PCB, why we're here, why we are a part of this organization, and to ask blessings and guidance as we um, do the things that we've planned at this conference. So we'll just take a moment to do that, and I will come back and continue. Okay, thank you. So think about themes for conferences. My personal theme is memories. And uh, you will find out why as I go along with this little presentation. Uh, I'm going to read. We have five names of those who have passed in the previous year. I'm going to read those names right now. Daniel Driscoll from Golden Triangle Chapter. Henry Herzig was an at-large member. Lem Letterer, Lehigh Valley. Karen Rocky, Washington County. Francis Venan, Washington County. I hope I pronounced her name correctly. I am now going to read a poem by one of our peers. Uh, It's called Remember Me. It's by Elisa Bush. Remember me when you stand in the rain without an umbrella. The droplets from heaven, heaven, blessing your head, where thoughts and feelings unite. Remember me when you hold another person in your arms, no place between you, excited by more than physical joining. Remember me when you sit alone in despair and a laugh from our past bubbles up into your face to erase, even for a moment, whatever sorrow pains. Remember me when you fling your whole self into loving, forgiveness, praise of nature, meaningful work. Remember me in all these things and more, and I will still be alive. I thought that I would just take a couple of moments um, to talk about some personal memories that I have. Most of these people are either peers or uh, are associated with peers. And it's, these are just my little vignettes 
my personal memories, but I'd like to share them with you. Um, the first one is Paul Hill. Paul Hill is Debbie Hill's husband. Debbie is now a member of our PCB. Uh, Paul was a very patient man, especially when it came to driving through rotaries in Boston. He was generous. When they would come to visit us at Christmas time, they always brought us a plate of, of Christmas cookies, home baked. And when Debbie would send him to Walmart to get some stuff, he would ask if there's anything we needed and, and he would never make us pay for it. Um, Karen Rocky. I didn't know Karen very well, but my husband and I one time attended a state legislative seminar with her. Karen loved to talk and share stories. And Karen was a compassionate person, and she wanted more than anything to help others. Hank Bloomberg was the founder of our chapter, and Hank was a BB, B, BBVS counselor. He was a good counselor. He made sure you had the things that you needed. And he had a great love for PCB. And it's thanks to Hank in part that I'm here today. Harry Long, these next few people I, I knew from when I went to the um, Western Pennsylvania School for Blind Children. Harry Long... Um, was a Star Trek fan. We loved to talk about Star Trek and any other kind of stuff. He loved to teach. He was generous. He would give you anything he had if he thought you needed it. Tony Ivancic. I don't know about the rest of you who attended the Western Pennsylvania School for the Blind, but I was afraid of Tony Ivancic a lot of the time, and I think I'm not alone in that. But when I graduated... Um, Tony eventually moved to Dubois and we visited him and his wife a couple of times and we talked on the phone and got to know each other and uh, he was very kind caring person but he was still a teacher the last time I talked to Tony he called to correct me on some mistakes that I had made in a report that I did uh, in my grammar Jim Davis loved music. And we knew that when we went to Pittsburgh, we could always stay with him and Linda. And if Jim liked you, he picked on you. Well, Jim picked on me, and I guess I'm glad to say that he liked me. He must have. The last person is Gil Bush. Um, Gil Bush had perfect pitch. He, he was amazingly talented. If you could sing it, he could play it. He was also very generous. And Gil loved bread. He loved to eat it, and he wanted to learn how to make it. And he wanted, to, wanted me to teach him how to make it. And we did that a couple of times. Um, I want you to know that I, I think about people who are gone a lot. Uh, and I, I believe that 
when we're gone, we continue to learn and grow. And I believe that someday we will see each other again and we will know each other. And this gives me hope and great peace and comfort. And I wish the same for all of you. In the meantime, we can allow our memories to keep them alive. So now we're going to just close with a moment of silence to ponder our memories. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Now, I, as the president of PCB, am going to give you my beginning comments to start off this convention and conference. Remember that our theme is Accelerate Your Trip to Self-Reliance. And I want to say that I believe that all of life is a trip, and that trip takes you towards self-reliance. From the time when you were a baby and needed strong arms of someone who loves you to take you from your crib, when you were completely dependent on others and gradually learned how to be more your own person, going through school learning how to solve problems, be they math or otherwise, learning all the tricks that everyone needs to get through life, becoming an adult and solving those issues, whether they were work problems, family issues, health issues, transportation issues. They were all things that you had to figure a way through in some way, shape, or form, all the way to becoming an old, older person who loses some of that independence and self-reliance as they age and their conditions, be it a, um, a physical, a additional physical disability, or whether it is um, some other problem that affects you, that changes how you view your self-reliance and your independence. So this is all a continuum, and no matter where we are on that continuum, I think that we can all learn something in this meeting, in this conference, about self-reliance. I'm not talking about the kind of self-reliance that Ralph Waldo Emerson mentioned or talked about in his essay where he insisted that people should be self-reliant and totally independent of others, not taking other people's um, opinions or whatever into account and dealing only as a a non-conforming kind of person. But I'm talking about the kind of self-reliance that I see see as um, confidence and maybe at times knowing that it's time to ask for help from somewhere in the community or knowing when it's time to actually 
admit that you can't do something and find a different way to get it done. And that's what I'm talking about when we say, when we came up with this this theme for the conference, the tools, resources, information, and people that you will learn from in this conference will allow you to become that more wise person making better decisions for yourself and not letting other people make them for you. We will learn to think more about what we are capable of as opposed to what other people think we should be able to do or shouldn't be able to do. This conference has already had a presentation about guide dogs and safety. And it gave people information about how to how to be a more proactive kind of person and be more self-reliant. Um, and we'll have plenty of other things uh, to talk about. One person's self-reliance may be learning how to ask for help and find out what help is available. And that would involve still learning how to use tools, information, resources, and people, but not so that they come and do things to you, but you do things with them. Another group of people will solve as many of their issues as they have as often as they can with technology. And those people are on the other end of the continuum. But that doesn't mean that either end is wrong. It just means that people do things in different ways. I have several examples of the kinds of things that we need to think about when we're thinking about self-reliance. How do you solve the issue when you have a sidewalk near your home that should be repaired and you would like someone to do it? Who do you go to? What do you do? Now, you can just complain or you can look up, find out the resources to go to, whether you have to go to the government so that they will cite the fan, the people who own the, the sidewalk to fix it or whatever. If there's an intersection near you that would benefit from an accessible pedestrian signal and it doesn't have one, it might have a traffic light, but it isn't accessible. What do you do? Now, these are all government kinds of issues, but there are times when you might be thinking of other kinds of uh, solutions to, that have to do with self-reliance. If you want to learn how to do a new skill, where do you go? How do you how do you learn it? If you feel that the senior center near your home doesn't take any care to assist visually impaired people who visit, how do you solve that? Who do you talk to? What do you what do you do? Now, some people would call that kind of activity advocacy, but you can't be an advocate until you have enough self-assurance, self-confidence, and self-reliance to believe that you actually can solve these things. Maybe you solve them with a group of other people. Maybe you solve them with the community. Maybe you solve them on your own or go to the newspapers or whatever. But nevertheless, you still have to have that feeling that you're in charge Don't say to somebody, oh, someone else will take care of it, because 
the buck stops with you if it's something that bothers you. And it doesn't do very well for you to say, oh, someone will do that because then you don't have any control over it. They make the decisions and you have nothing to do with it. How do you, how do you get that shopping done? One person may use um, the internet. Another person may have a group of friends and family who can help them. A third person may have to go to um, a service that they pay to do it. A fourth person may um, find a volunteer to help them. Um, and all these ways are valid. It's just a question of how do you, which way do you choose to do these things? And that's what self-reliance is all about. You might wonder what have your peers already discovered? And we'll find a list of those kinds of things here at our conference. Ways to solve problems and questions that you probably hadn't, you thought about them, but didn't come up with a solution. And so you said, I'll put that one on the side. We've, you know, we're thinking in terms of all the tools, information, resources, and people that we can use to help us be more in control of our lives. The um, communications team has come up with the Now What book. And it is a booklet, a book that we'll, we'll be just demonstrating how it will help people who are losing their vision and their families while they're waiting for services from agencies to help them. We'll have information in this conference about fitness, about mental health, about solving problems before they actually occur by using um, improvisation and self-hypnosis to teach us, to teach our minds how to deal with the problem before it actually exists. We'll have uh, the use of humor and um, painting with a broad brush to understand some situations that we can run into, and maybe we'll learn from these situations ways that we've let ourselves be controlled by situations instead of us controlling the situation. We'll also have a little bit of fun with movies, plays, tours, and games. So it won't be an all-work kind of uh, weekend, but I hope that by your being at this conference, you will embrace and accelerate your trip to self-reliance. So I think join me in enjoying the rest of this conference. That's the end of my remarks. The next presentation is the Vision, Vision Loss Team presentation. And um, the uh, presenters are shown as Kathy Long, Julianne Lieberman, and uh, Cynthia Gibbs-Pratt. And so we've got Kathy Long, and everybody knows Kathy. She's been the secretary of the Capital City chapter and president and vice president of that chapter. She's the president of Keystone at this point, and she's been a member of PCB since 1986. She was um, the board secretary for 20 years, and she's been on the uh, board of directors 
I mean, she's been the, the she was the PCB secretary for 20 years and she's been on the board as a board member for five years and is leaving the board at the end of this term. Um, and, uh, she has, is serving on two teams on which she is also the secretary at this point. Um, Julianne is a well-known person to PCB members. Um, she's a professional in the field of vision loss, presents at professional events and, uh, is a consultant to AER and works for Tech Owl. And Cynthia Gibbs Pratt is a fairly new member of PCB. She has become very active in advocacy. Um, her vision is deteriorating, so she has a great belief in vision loss, as uh, not in vision loss, but in helping people with vision loss. And she is on two different um, teams of the statewide endeavor for PCB. She went to the mid-year meetings this year and and was involved with getting in touch with uh, legislators and um, probably I wonder if she hopes to do that with me again next year. <laughs> she um, has been involved in dealing with the legislative imperatives and she just told us that she was at a uh, disability rally yesterday in Harrisburg where people were recognizing her for her um, hard work in the area. And then the other members of the team will be, um, will be uh, participating if they have comments to make from the audience, they'll raise their hands. And that would be Jeanette, John, Jeanette Schmoyer, John Horst, Ed Facemeyer, maybe if he isn't tired of moving his furniture yet, and Bobby Simmons. Um, so I will give it now to Julianne, who is the mistress of ceremony for this um, event, and she is going to describe how things are going to work. Thank you, Chris. Um, welcome, everybody at PCB, our friends of PCB and ACB uh, members that have joined us for this evening's presentation. Uh, our vision loss resource team has put together four different skits or scenarios uh, where they'll describe essentially what would you do is the title of this session. And what would, I want you to think about what you would do if you find yourself in this situation, or perhaps you have already experienced this situation and think about, uh, how, uh, our performers have responded in these scenarios. And there's four of them. And I, I, don't want to give too much of a, uh, introduction on each one of the sessions because I think Hearing the performance um, is quite um, effective, and we are very fortunate that we also have it audio described, even though it's not visual. <laughs> so I think it's it's a, a great opportunity for you to um, experience um, if you are new to vision loss, get some ideas, or if you've been uh, living with vision loss for a very long time. Uh, but you may not have encountered this situation or have always felt uncomfortable in these situations. Hopefully these skits will give you some uh, good ideas. And uh, I think with that said, um, I'm going to throw it back over to Doug if he could play the first skit for us. A man with low vision and good travel skills is taking public transportation to the 30th Street Amtrak station in Philadelphia. He's trying to catch the 4.15 p.m. train to Chicago. 
he was able to make his round-trip reservation over the phone via Amtrak's virtual assistant, Julie. Although he is familiar with the Paoli Regional Rail Station, he has very little knowledge about the Amtrak 30th Street Station. Wheeling his suitcase onto the Paoli local train, he takes a seat. Forty minutes later, 30th Street Station, next stop, is called. As he steps onto the platform with the huge crowd, he realizes he is not sure which way to go. Speaking to the person beside him, Excuse me. Yes, sir. May I help you? I have low vision. Can you tell me which way to go to get to the stairs that lead down to the Amtrak station? Surely, sir. It's right over there. Uh, would I go right or left? Do you see that bench next to the elevator there? The stairs are right close by. I'm sorry, sir, but I have to go now. By now, the traveler is alone. As the crowd has disappeared, he flips a metal coin and turns left. Fortunately for him, he has made the right decision. He descended to the regional rail station. He knows the Amtrak station is in the same building. Seeking further direction, he addresses a young lady standing nearby. Excuse me. Yes, sir. I have low vision. Which way is it to the Amtrak station? It is right over there, sir. Uh, do I go left or right? Once you reach the pizza stand, you go down the ramp over there. Uh, do I go left, right, or straight ahead? Okay, so follow me. I'm going that way also. He follows the young woman, then finds a bench, and sits down to listen and wait for the announcement of the train's arrival. A little after 4 p.m., he hears... Train to Chicago, now boarding on track 7, section B. Please have your ticket ready for inspection at the top of the stairs. And thank you for riding on Amtrak. He then turns to the person sitting next to him and asks, Can you please tell me which way track 7, section B is? I have low vision. Yeah, it's right over there. Do I go right or left? Sir, do you see that guy standing there with the big green backpack? It's right over there. A man who has been listening to the encounter steps in to help. Follow me, sir. I am also on the train to Chicago. Okay. Boy, that brought back some memories of traveling on Amtrak. So I'm going to uh, go pose some questions now, and I'm going to open it up for comments uh, or questions or again what would you do in this situation and I'm going to try and limit it to uh, at the most five minutes so I hope uh, one of our timekeepers can give us a heads up so that we don't uh, you know run into run out of time with with all four skits are very uh, uh, different and very helpful so I'm going to switch over to my questions hang on a second the first one is there a better way for that traveler to have, um, you know, Ed making his way through uh, the station and get to the his down to from the one regional rail down to the 30th Street station? If anybody have any ideas that they want to uh, chime in, Lisa Salinger. I think with all of these, he's asking really good questions, and what he's getting is over there that way. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And when people want to talk to me in what I call gesturees, I try to accommodate them. So in my case, I, if they say it's over that way, I would say, um, I'm totally blind. Do you mean that way? And I would point 
or gesture right. And it's like, then they get it and they'll take my hand and they'll go, no, that way. And they'll point me left. Or I don't really like the hands on so much, but sometimes like they'll turn my shoulders, which is not ideal, but at least it gets me in the right direction. Um, situations like that nowadays too. I also use Ira because they've learned to not do that. Donna Williams has her hand raised. Donna, what, what kind of observations would you have made? Okay. I am a low vision person. And one of the things that I do when I travel, especially with going on Amtrak, because there's so many different gates and so many, especially 30th street station, which is where I would go from. I get assistance. I am not ashamed to get assistance. I will call Amtrak. I will make my reservation. Um, I usually try, I usually like to talk to somebody um, directly and I let them know I do not see very well and I need assistance. And I go to the, um, the, I guess it's a station master's office, whatever that office is in there. And they do help. Now, I, I know where that is. I had to ask. That was a interesting. Again, I was getting the same right, left. You know, they weren't telling me right or left. They were saying over there, over there. Um, but I asked Amtrak, if I'm coming from SEPTA and I'm coming down that ramp, where do I go to go to that office? And I was given directions by Amtrak. So I would say just, you know, ask you know, the people that, you know, the service that you're trying to travel with. Absolutely. That's uh, one of the first recommendations most people will be given is see what services are already provided by the, um, you know, again, the transportation source that you're using and ask for that assistance. You can step and ask up and ask that question. One of the things that we've talked about here, too, is uh, low vision. Um, and that sometimes most people don't know what that means. Um, like to, even when I was taking college courses, we had an assignment to define it. And we really had difficulty defining that term, low vision. I didn't ask, you know, yeah. or we didn't notice was uh, a time was whether he was using a, uh, some way to identify uh, that he had a white cane, perhaps. Um, and then maybe that would have been a little bit more helpful. But, uh, you know, just not traveling without a white cane is not, uh, you know, as low vision is very common. So that would be one of the things that you'd have to explain what you can and can't see. Okay, Doug, you want to go to the next one? Cynthia um, has her hand raised. Yeah. Oh, Cynthia. Mm-hmm. Real quick. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thank you. So piggybacking off of uh, the two young ladies who went before me as a person with low vision, I never say that I am low vision, first and foremost. And I'm also familiar with Amtrak since maybe 30, 35 years. So what I do is when I make my uh, reservations with Julie, Julie doesn't always get the full information of what you need. So after Julie gives me the res- um, the schedule and the pricing, I will put on hold for a person and I will let them know I am legally blind and I have my king, so this is what I need. I need assistance boarding and unboarding the train. And I also need assistance with my luggage because at various stations, there are gaps. 
So I am familiar with the station by me because before my vision loss, I was coming back and forth to Pennsylvania visiting family. So I know this station like the back of my hand with or without vision. However, the 30th Street station is pretty scary for me because it's bigger and it does have a gap between the station and the train. So I always make sure that I, I, I let them know I need this, I need that. And and with that being said, and I'm going to close real quickly, here in, in Harrisburg at the Amtrak station, I make good rapport with the um, porters. So they know me. So when they see me, they're very much inclined to help me. And I also try to give them a tip so they know when they see me, I need this help. And they take me to my seat. And I always ask for disabled seating so they know when I get to my next location, they document it. So if I'm going from here to New York, they know to look for me to help me um, deboard the train, so to speak, and get to my destination. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that was that was very good uh, observations. Thank you, um, uh, Cynthia. I one thing I wanted to add to that is you're absolutely correct. Give as much information of what you need, uh, and don't expect them to understand automatically what your needs are. You need to let them know what those needs are. Okay, so let's move on to skip two, okay, Doug? In an airport, a young woman arrives at a counter to get her instructions and to be placed at the proper gate to get her flight from upstate New York to Pennsylvania. Excuse me, is this the counter for American Airlines? I am on the flight to Pennsylvania. Uh, Let me see your ticket. She hands her ticket to the agent. Well, yes, you do have a ticket to Pennsylvania, but unfortunately, it is not with American Airlines. It's with JetBlue. Oh, no, I didn't realize that. I came to New York on American Airlines, and I assumed it was a round-trip ticket at the same airport. I understand, but good news, JetBlue does have a counter in this airport. Let me get you some help to get you over to that counter. Thank you so much. Internally chastising herself and muttering, OMG, I should have had someone look at my ticket before I got here. A tall airport skycap approaches the young woman where she stands with her luggage and looking confused. He has a wheelchair in tow. Here I am, ma'am. Have a seat so we can get going. She hesitates, still standing. Um, I don't need or want a wheelchair. I can walk. If I can just take your arm, I can walk beside you. Well, yes, you can, but it's a two-mile walk, and I'm very busy. I have to get you there quickly, or you might miss your plane. Three of our guys called off today, and there are not enough skycaps to assist all these people. Okay, if that would make it faster and easier for you, can you please help me find the chair? I definitely do not want to miss my plane. The skycap guides her so she can sit. He takes hold of the wheelchair and the woman's luggage and starts to run. They reach the JetBlue airline counter in a matter of minutes. Okay, ma'am, we're here now. You can get up. He quickly disappears. Now she doesn't know where her luggage or the counter is. The young lady is thinking to herself and muttering. I wish I would have had someone read this ticket to me. I would have known it was not the same airline. Oh my God, where is my luggage? As people line up behind her, she's not sure what to do next, so she turns to the man behind her. Excuse me, sir. Where is the ticket counter? I am blind. Well, where is your caretaker? I do not have one. I am very independent, but right now I am in an unfamiliar place. Can you please help me get in line so that I can speak to the ticket agent at the counter? 
Oh, okay, sure. I did not know that blind people could travel alone. Well, not all of us do. I guess this is a learning lesson for the both of us. I have already made so many mistakes today. I totally understand. There are three people in front of you, ma'am. I apologize for thinking you could not take care of yourself. No worries. It happens all the time. The more blind people are seen out in the public and in the community, the more people can educate themselves on how to assist a blind person. Then people can see that we are very proud and independent individuals. Good points. Okay, ma'am, you are next. The young lady speaks with the agent, gets her ticket approved, and finds where she needs to go. The agent requests a skycap, but there is a long wait. The young lady sits in a seat near the jet blue counter, waiting to board the plane. The man who spoke to her in line comes over to her. Hi again. Where do you need to go? Gate 13. Lucky 13. I hope. Well then, it's your lucky day. I'm also going to gate 13. How can I assist you? When it's time to board the plane, may I hold you by your forearm? This will put you a step or two ahead of me. I can do escalators, but I need to know which way it is going, up or down, so that I am safe getting off and on. Okay, great. I got you. Come on. Away they go. I'm glad you are educating me on how to assist blind people. I truly hope I did not offend you back there. No, but I'm already a little confused and nervous. This is only my second flight. I flew out in June to attend an eight-week college orientation training, and now I'm on my way home. I am very eager to start my college course, and I will be so excited when I get there. Good for you. That is so awesome. I am an employment specialist for a well-known employment agency. Meeting you here today has given me a new outlook and understanding on how I view blind people and people with disabilities. Well, if that's the case, maybe it was a good thing I went to the wrong ticket counter because I would not have ever met you if all had gone well. Well, I guess God works in mysterious ways, right? Here's the gate, and the stewardess is heading your way. Thank you so much. So nice chatting with you, and thank you so much for all your help. The pleasure was all mine, ma'am. Have a safe trip, and good luck with your courses. Yeah, I just want to know where her luggage went. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you assume that you know they gave it to her, but you know, hey, I wrote that skit, so it's my it's my bad. (laughs) That's still funny. (laughs) Hi, this is Cynthia. Actually, that that part was supposed to be set a little earlier, so somehow it lagged behind. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know what happened to her luggage. Maybe it it maybe it made. Maybe it made <clears throat> made it to Chicago on track seven B. Who knows? <laughs> well, good that she took the time to educate uh, the person that the she guy. talked with instead of just getting mad and getting an attitude. Well, I wanted I wanted to make. We have a hand sound- raised. Just give me a oh, chance to go, find her. Go ahead. 
759. Hi, everybody. Good evening. This is Pam Shaw. Hi. This is great. What a wonderful skit. It is almost to the letter exactly what happened to me. And here's what I learned. Number one, when finding, especially if the person is sighted, sighted people make mistakes and will give you incorrect directions. So I learned to be very careful about who I was talking to. I thought I was talking to an airport employee, and I was just talking to another passenger who was equally lost. So although wanting to help got me more lost. The other thing that I learned, too, is that it was possible if you're going from one gate to another gate in the same airline, but it's going to take you a while, you can ask them to call over to the gate where you're supposed to be so they know that you're on the way. And I never thought airplanes would wait for people but the airplane waited for me. And so I was really, really glad about that. The other thing that I, I liked about the kit, skit was um, ah, not to become unglued because when you think you're running for a plane, it is easy, believe me, it's easy oh, yeah. to dis- lose your own sense and be frightened and be scared. But again, I thought it was a great skit and an excellent characterization of what really can and does happen. So thanks a lot for allowing me to share. This is Julianne, and I I apologize for all the internet problems. And I wanted to say thank you to Pam. That was a great observation that you made. And hopefully I'll correct my internet issues, so I apologize. The next person, Kathy, do you want to take over for the next person well all right uh if if you want to raise uh raise hands and i'll make appropriate comments if i need to while we are while we're kind of have this pause going on um i wanted to tell you who the actors are oh Oh, well you didn't so here i am um (laughs) there's tom brown he's the guy that kept saying over here, over there, you know, he was the sky cap in the last one. Um, Cynthia Gibbs Pratt, I think everybody's getting to know her voice now, and we're glad of that. She is a great advocate now. And um, Ed Facemeyer, and he wrote the first skit, the train skit, and he was the guy lost. And I think most people know Ed's voice. Um, Nikki Keck. She's coming up in the next couple skits, and uh, you heard her sing tonight. Beautiful voice, don't you think? And um, me, Kathy Long, and Roger Simmons, and the very last person is Tony. How can we forget our producer, Tony? He did such a great job recording us and getting some sound effects in there, and oh, man, we, we couldn't have sounded nearly as good without you tony and thank you he's our audio genius audio editor extraordinaire and we have our audio engineer also right there too that's actually making great time and getting these skits in on time um okay do anybody else have any other comments about airline travel um, yeah you have one hand raised oh good 1754 this is october um where i am now i don't have a lot of travel my cousin takes me to the dentist and I'll take her arm like if I have to sit in the dentist chair or lie on a table for therapy so I don't lead a lot of cane travel 
However, when I lived in South Florida, not only am I totally blind, but I also dealt with panic disorder. And when I was taking mobility training, some days were I could take the bus, I could go, I could just do anything. And other days I couldn't find my way out of a paper bag. And my teacher said I was inconsistent. And it always seemed to worsen during the hot weather. That's why I moved up to Pennsylvania. So I thought, there has to be something I can do. And I thought, what if I could find someone to go with me? And my mother said, you're not going to find anybody. And I was working as a licensed massage therapist. I found three people, and there was this place called Sistrunk Boulevard. And my mother didn't like the idea of me walking it alone. She said, why are you doing this? I said, Mom, I'm not only dealing with being blind, but I'm also dealing with panic disorder. And I refuse to be an agoraphobic, to just sit in my house and let life pass me by. I just wanted to share that. I think that's very good point because a lot of times people uh out of fear of traveling independently themselves they'll again be afraid to leave their home uh and that's really a definition of agoraphobic and well, so I was physically you know, ill too on top of that i had uh, panic attacks and yeah. you know night terrors and physically sick yeah and you but managed to conquer that yeah, they're going to say you didn't let it stop you when you had to do it and you got the help that you needed. And that's half the battle is recognizing when you need that extra help and uh, going after getting the help that you need. Uh, so so I, I had you... a best buddy system. My mother didn't think I'd find anybody. I found mm-hmm. three people. There My you mother go. didn't think I'd find one. <laughs> that's terrific. John Dunn okay. has his hand raised. Good evening. Uh, I just wanted to say um, I really like how she you know, explained how to help her because some people don't know. And I find that all the time as a total uh, people don't know what kind of ways we need help. So I'm one who will always say, let me grab you by the arm or in some cases mm-hmm. like with the uh, kids in my scout troop, for example, if they're helping a lot of them are a lot shorter than me. So I put my hand on their mm-hmm. shoulder just because that's what works best in that situation. But so, you know, I like to educate people myself on how to best help me and what ways to help and what help I need and don't need. And I think that's something that people need to do in all kinds of situations and scenarios when you're, even when you're traveling, just, you know, especially like with the Amtrak one that people said, make sure you call ahead, do the same thing with airlines, call ahead and just Mm -hmm. let them know what assistance you're going to need. So just a few food for thought for everybody. So think about. And one other observation I think uh, we can make too, is that, uh, this was an opportunity to, um, and like all these situations, opportunity to educate others of how uh, what the needs are of someone who's blind and when they're traveling. So um, being able to, again, uh, describe what your needs are and also describe how well you do things on your own. And that was a great example in this uh, airport scenario where she actually made an impression on somebody who, eventually it's going to be hiring people that with disabilities, including someone who's blind. So, um, you know, congratulations to this airline traveler for also, you know, again, introducing the uh, skills and abilities of somebody who's blind. Uh, again, the independence of traveling. So thanks very much. Okay, Doug, do you want to go into the, the next one for us? Taking a trip on a local bus, getting off at the requested stop. A woman who is blind, holding a white and red mobility cane, approaches the open door of a bus. 
Hello, driver. Is this the X-33 bus? Yes, it is. Okay, can you please let me know when we approach 5th and Lincoln? That is where I want to get off. No problem, ma'am. We'll do. The woman mounts the bus, sits across from the bus driver, and begins to talk with him as much as possible to keep the driver's mind in gear to remember her requested stop. She also begins to chat with the passenger beside her. Hi, I'm Sheila. Would you mind if I asked you a few questions? Not at all. My name is Carol. I heard you ask the bus driver to let you off at 5th and Lincoln. I get off the stop before that. So when I get off the bus, that will be your clue to ring the bell for your stop, which is a couple of blocks away. Thank you very much. That's fabulous. I'm a little nervous because I'm going to a job interview today. If I get the job, I'll be taking this route twice a day, but definitely not at this time. It will be early morning and then again after 5 o'clock. Wow. Good luck to you. By the way, you look very nice today, Sheila. Oh, thank you so much. By the way, um, I'm curious, does this bus have an enunciator that automatically announces what street the bus is on? The bus driver interrupts. Yes, it does, but I turn it off because I can't stand that constant loud voice. Well, actually, I'm sorry you have the ability to do that. It's the law for buses to announce all the stops. It's part of the Americans with Disabilities Act. I did not know that. I'll turn it on until you get off the bus. I never had any type of training about this. Thank you. I appreciate that. But if other people who are blind, for example, if you see somebody with a red and white mobility cane with them and they get on your bus, could you please consider turning on the announcements for them, too, so that they will know where they are and can be as independent as possible? Uh, I'll consider it. However, he does turn on the announcement system to accommodate Sheila. Bye, Sheila. Goodbye, Carol. Thank you for all your help. Sheila gets off at her designated spot without incident and gets to her job interview on time. I particularly love the sound of the white cane. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's, it's fabulous. Okay. Um, I think, you know, one of the first things you wanted, I brought up uh, on these, with this skit, was the reference to the American with Disabilities Act. And um, Sheila did a, a fabulous job of explaining why that is important and referring it to the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, I think that, you know, if I was in that situation, I'm not so sure I would do that. So I'm curious to see if anybody else has any um, comments or suggestions as well. Uh, if Sheila could have handled it better, I don't think she could have, frankly, myself, but I'm sure other people might have other opinions. Nikki, any questions? Nikki yeah. has her hand raised. Oh, the actress herself. Try this again. <laughs> My comment kind of goes along with both of these because in a way, I mean, I'm not as verbose as some, and I try to make the least amount of big deal as I can about some of these things. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but like with telling the woman or the woman telling the man about the sighted guide, um, 
I get into this situation a lot, actually, because when I go to my hairdresser to get my hair cut, she tries to grab onto my arm. And I'll just reach my hand around and, and grab her arm instead. And uh, I don't make a big deal. I don't say, oh, I really need to grab your arm. Maybe I should. I, I don't know. But I, I just feel like I'm, I'm making it as um, least of a deal as I can, not trying to be, a, be difficult about it and just, just calmly, you know, changing the um, orientation of my arm and, and holding on to her instead. And she goes along with it. She doesn't try and grab me again or anything. She, I think she just forgets from month to month. And I mean, I probably like you, Julie, and I don't know if I'd mention the ADA in, in that situation. I, I might start to wonder if, oh, gee, am I listening? Do I, is it really in the ADA? I'm not as first as, with it, the ADA as I probably should be. So I might just say, really, it would be helpful to turn on or off, you know, turn on those uh, announcements for the stops. Um, and because I wouldn't want to be proven wrong by quoting the ADA if I didn't know for sure where it was in the ADA or that it was there. So, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't do that either. I might not say as much as was said here. Just, you know, try and, and I don't know, make light of it and, and just make it into the, as least of a deal as I can. Try not to make it a big production out of it, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Um, one of the suggestions I was thinking as I was listening to it is that, okay, if you don't want to turn on the enunciator, then will you announce all the stops for me? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this I is Kathy. I make a joke I, about it. <laughs> I, after the ADA came out, I was riding a bus. I, I rode four buses a day, two to get to work and two to get back. And I asked the driver, why, why aren't, these things announcing the bus and he said we don't have to this is a rural bus company i said this is harrisburg pennsylvania where the governor lives how can this be a rural bus company i couldn't believe it cynthia has her hand raised thank you everybody i i just wanted to say first nikki did a wonderful job and i enjoyed working with her even though we only had one chance to like actually um, rehearse and record it so with that being said is working for the city of New York for over 18 years and I see, and I worked right up the block from Helen Keller's school. So when I would hear the cane, first of all, I would step aside before my vision loss. And even afterwards, I would still step aside out of respect because I can hear the ball. So as far as the ADA is concerned, had a bus driver told me he had no training, I would have got the bus driver's name, the bus number, and I would have had to report it because, first of all, you're supposed to know that when you're working for any city, state, or federal office about the ADA rules. I'm going to give a brief synopsis of a situation I had when I first started losing my vision. And I went to my supervisor because I needed a reasonable accommodation. And she told me I should just retire in my 40s. And I was upset because I didn't know how to advocate for myself. And I was, I can say, probably... um not an acceptance of my vision loss at that time because it came so quickly. However, a coworker who knew the person who dealt with the reasonable accommodations took me to her and we sat down and I got my reasonable accommodation. So ADA is supposed to be known throughout, especially if you're working for those type of agencies. So I think I would have just got his name and number, even though I'm, she's visually impaired or, or blind, she couldn't see it. I would just ask, or ask, uh, Carol, if she can just write it down for me or 
typing into my phone or something to that effect because he should have been reported for not knowing the rules or keeping on the enunciator for people with disabilities, period. Thank you guys for listening. That's a great observation, Cynthia. And I had an incident very kind of not the same thing, but regarding my guide dog, um, and I was traveling on the regional rail and one of the uh, conductors was uh, giving me a hard time for bringing my, you know, coming on with my dog. And uh, it, it was, you know, no, that, that this is a guide dog. I'm, I'm allowed to be on this train with this guide dog. And it gave me all kinds of hard times. So finally, what I did was when I went home, course after trying to explain multiple times yeah i don't look blind that's what he kept saying um that i said to him okay then i guess i'll have to talk take this up with septa and sure enough i did contact um the customer service and i did mention it i reported the time of when it was what train line i was on so they had an idea who the crew was and so that uh and they did call me back and they said they did require the crew then um to do another follow-up training on um, service animals. And so even though it's not the same thing as this example with the enunciator, it is a matter of what can you do? And in this case, I agree with you that perhaps, uh, you know, contacting the transit authority to let them know that this happened to you and why this is important and further training needs to be done. Anybody else? Have, Mary have yeah, Donna, Donna Williams has her hand up. Uh, what I wanted to share, this is kind of a funny, quick, funny story about the enunciator. Um, I was going to work and the situation was there were two bus stops I could get off at. The one was before the other one. And the second one, the street was not a good street to get off at for a blind person. So I said to the driver, could you please let me know when I get to my stop? And he said, sure. And I said, when the bus started up, usually they had the enunciator on. This day they didn't. So I said, what happened to the enunciator? And he said, oh, the people don't want it on. The people don't like it. So I turned it off. I'm going to leave it off. And I said, well, don't forget my stop. Don't you know he forgot my stop? And I said to him, he, he ended up accommodating me, though. He went around the block and took me around. And when he just told the people, I have to take a detour because I made a mistake. And it's easier for her to get off at this other stop. Well, when, when I got off at the stop, I just smiled at him. He said, I'm so sorry this happened. And I, and I smiled at him and I said, well, I said, maybe next time you'll use the enunciator. <laughs> Ending in 507 has her hand raised. I think that's October. When in 1974, a year after I graduated from high school, my mother said, I want you to meet some relatives on your father's side. And you have an uncle who died. And I want you to meet his daughter, Cindy. She's your cousin in Dallas, Texas, and then we'll go to Arizona. So we took a Greyhound bus, and as we were driving, my mother was able to see the pine trees, the palms, the grass, the leaves, the cactus, and all the different things that I were not able to see. So she started explaining to me what she was seeing, the trees, the ground, the gravel, 
windows, things passing by as we were driving on the bus. Well, the bus driver, the everyone turned around and was listening to my mother as she was explaining things to me. And the bus driver picked up on it, and he started describing all the different trees, the different grasses, the different palm versus pine versus cone as we were going along. And did you know that Louisiana is the rice capital of the United States? Thank you, October. Thank Thank you. This is my favorite skit. You're going to like it, too. I would say play it, Doug. Okay. Play that thing. All right, here we go. That's my favorite, too. Thank you. This scenario involves a senior citizen who is entering a rehabilitation facility for care after being hospitalized due to a recent surgery. A senior citizen is laying in a bed. A lady comes in and says, Hello, Mrs. Smith. I am Marge, and I am the nutritionist in this facility. I am glad you got here safely. I know you will progress well at our facility. How is your throat? Are you hungry? My throat is still a little sore. However, I would like to try and eat something soft so that it goes down smoothly. Okay, yeah, that sounds like the ticket. How about some fruit yogurt and maybe vanilla pudding? That sounds great. I would like to try a warm ginger ale as well, if you have any. Yes, we do. I will have an aide bring these things right to you. Thank you. Jean hears a knock on the open door and turns in that direction. Come in. Hello, Mrs. Smith. I am Harold. I'm assigned to this unit. I brought you some fruit yogurt, vanilla pudding, and a ginger ale. Oh, thank you, Harold. Can you put the tray down on my bed table in front of me, please? Harold puts the tray on the bed table and is in the process of leaving the room. Excuse me, can you please help me raise my bed so that I can sit up and eat and drink? Harold raises Jean's bed, but she is concerned because now she doesn't know where to find her food and drink on the tray. Uh, excuse me, can you show me where exactly the ginger ale is? I don't want to knock it over. If you can please place my hand on it. That would be great. Harold puts Jean's hand on the ginger ale. It's right here. Thank you so much, Harold. Harold leaves the room. He returns a few hours later to check on Jean. Glad to see you eaten. Is there anything else you need? No, thank you. I don't need anything else at this time. The ginger ale really helped a great deal, though. Thirty minutes later, another medical attendee enters the room. Jean was asleep, but woke up in time to answer some medical questions. Now that she has had some sleep, she is more focused on the things the staff need to know in caring for her. Excuse me, do I have a social worker assigned to me yet? You should have one assigned to you sometime tomorrow, ma'am. Well, that's good to know. I would like to have a talk with him or her when we know who that will be. I am not feeling well right now, which is why I'm here. I am blind and would like to explain some of my special needs to the social worker so that he or she can make notes in my chart for all staff to have a good understanding of my needs and expectations while I'm here. Well, it sounds like that little nap did you a world of good, Mrs. Smith. We will work to see to it that the social worker comes to see you. Thank you so much. 
Early next morning, a woman walks into Jean's room. Mrs. Smith, I'm Frances Everready, your social worker. But everybody around here, including the patients, call me Frankie, so we can do that too. And they told me you wanted to talk with me about some things. Yes, ma'am. Thanks for coming in, Frankie. Please notify your staff that I am blind. Please instruct them not to move anything that I have strategically placed on my bedside tray. If they should need to move or relocate anything to provide care for me, they must verbalize what they are moving and where they are moving it to. I must always know where the call button is. Someone has already showed me how to use it and where it's located. I am thankful that the wait here has not been so long. Perhaps that is a blessing. Okay. Thank you for letting us know, Mrs. Smith. We will notify all staff of your special needs and requirements. Thank you so much, Frankie. Does the facility have an ombudsman? Well, yes, we do. Um, may I ask, what is the problem? Uh, nothing at all. This is why I want to have a conversation with him or her to prevent any miscommunications with staff and therapists going forward. Oh, okay, I, I understand. I will have Mr. Josh Logan come in when he is available. I appreciate that. I know you have probably serviced other patients with vision loss or blindness. However, this is not a new disability for me. My most recent surgery is. But as I heal and receive the therapy I need to get back on my feet, I really need to keep track of everything I have here and where it is located. Absolutely, Mrs. Smith. That makes perfect sense to me. Therapy is going to be in very soon to start your evaluation. Oh, thank you so much for all your help and patience. Well, my throat sore just listening to Cynthia on that one. <laughs> just listening. It did hurt. Lisa, Lisa. Yeah, I was kind of going there. My congratulations first to Cynthia for sounding like the most poor, pathetic person possibly in the history of the world. Um, Thank you. The, the, the one thing I thought is, I mean, it almost hurt to hear. And it sounded like it hurt to talk that way. And if that were a patient, I I think... If I were going through something like that, I would have, had I had the, the computer skills to do it and the equipment to do it, written out a list of my needs and concerns um, so that, well, like, the social worker came in and the ombudsman was coming in, but she had no idea if they were taking notes you know, and possibly a copy could be posted in her room and then she wouldn't have to say it to everyone. The other thing, especially if it's going to be a prolonged stay, um, you can get something as sophisticated as uh, pockets that hang off the side of the bed that can hold things or even just a plastic grocery bag with handles that you hang on the side of the bed. And then you can put your possessions in there because 
people will move your stuff. They'll move your tray table. And if you can have everything that you're going to need, you know, for the next couple hours in one thing that's right under your hand, um, it will make life a lot easier. And I think just it's really important to tell them what you need. Um, my last surgery, I was very, very out of it. And they put this remote in my hand, and it had 24 buttons. I counted later, 24. It was like, this is what you use if you want a drink. This is what you use if you want to turn on the TV. This is what you want to use if you turn on the radio. And I kept saying, what do I press if I need a nurse? This is what you press if you have to go to the bathroom. This is what you press if you're in pain. I'm like... I am not going to remember this. I am drugged to the eyeballs. I need one button. You know, I just need one button. And uh, sometimes I think you just have to be really clear about that. And it, it's good to go to the social workers, but it's also good um, to educate the individual staff. And, you know, if you can, don't don't be afraid to laugh at yourself, you know, and make a joke of things when it's appropriate, because I think in general, people are more comfortable, they kind of can identify more like, oh, this is someone like me. Anyway, that was a mouthful. (laughs) My apologies for the length. That, Lisa, I think that made some really good points, if I can sum them up, is that any kind of situation that we talked about tonight, being prepared, it's always a good, you know, Girl Scout, you know, be prepared uh, and having out um, some, again, helpful tips. And I know uh, PCB um, has been, had been working on some um, guides for hospitals uh, as mm-hmm. well on how to handle it. And I think, you know, having something handy like that would be very, so you get, you don't have to keep repeating it. And B, that they, it's almost like a, a notice. These are the kind of things I need help with and things to avoid, like moving my things. If I place them there, it's there for a reason. Um, I do like the idea of the bags, though. That's, I never even thought of that myself. So, um, so that they're nearby. The only caution I give about that is sometimes the clinging people come in and think it's trash. So, yeah, um, that's, that's that's the only true. worry I'd have, the only worry I'd have about that. I think I'd um, make sure it was a clear bag if yeah. I could, then they could see what's in it. That's a good idea. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think, too, the sense of humor is not so much important for the people you're interacting with. Mm-hmm. I find if I could make jokes about things, I mean, when somebody says to me, you don't look blind, <laughs> I really, really have to bite my tongue to say, oh, you don't look stupid. You know, <laughs> I know. I would, I would never, but it's so tempting. And it's like, okay, if I can make a joke about something else, um, mm. it will help me keep my cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, again, I think of having a sense of humor is important in all the uh, situations that we talked about. Marianne, yeah. anybody else? Yes, you have two people on the panelist side. You have our president, Chris, and you have um, Kelsey Nicolay. So, so I had a situation Oops, recently um, when I went to my doctor. I they they needed to take me from the exam room to the lab to get blood drawn, and I had. Uh, I had just gotten a new white cane. It was one of the 
you know, is one of the free ones. And so I was using it and the nurse that was taking me, I guess she, she had concerns that I did not know how to use the cane correctly. So she, she, you know, she grabbed the cane by the tip and started dragging me down the hallway. It was awful. And, and this was after I had just explained to her how to, how to guide somebody correctly. So you could imagine that it, it it could have gotten worse from there. I mean, and I, I guess, you know, and I guess my thing is with that is I think if the nurse truly had a concern about that, she should have brought it up to the doctor who should have sent a referral, you know, to get services instead of trying to drag me down the hallway. I mean, that was, I mean, maybe I could have handled that better. I don't know, but it, I just know that to now, every time I go back, I'm like, I hope this nurse is not working because I, that was really uncalled for, for, for her to do that. Kelsey, this is Kathy. If she started dragging me down the hall, I would let go of the cane. That's what I've done. Yeah. I would have just said, this is not how we do it. Yeah. Uh, I had a situation similar, like where a nurse was insisting on, on pulling me. And I said, I said, I know we no, just we don't came do that. out of out of a, a surgery center. I was walking back to the recovery uh-huh. room, and I and I said, "Please let me hold on to you." And I said, "Oh no, this is how I'm going to do this." And I said, "Then I'm not holding." Then I said, "Then you must let go of me, and I'll walk next to you." And I knew I was taking a risk because I didn't, you know, have my white cane with me. And uh, so when the doctor came in to do, you know, the follow up after the uh, procedure. Um, I said, I think your your staff needs some instruction on how to handle somebody with vision loss. I said, because I'm a very strong, relatively uh, young person. I said, and you deal with people that are a lot older. They could have gotten seriously hurt if she, if that person lost their balance being pushed. So sometimes it is. It's not just for your benefit that you're going to you know do this kind of you know. Uh, again, on-the-spot advocacy, but also for the next person that's coming through that situation. Um, and, yeah, that that anything you can do to help educate others would help. Uh, and and I had almost, on. and I almost considered calling the hospital to file a formal complaint, but then... Well, you should have. But then I... I, I, I to get the nurse, I didn't want to get the nurse in trouble, but and I, and I also didn't want to make a big deal out of something that you know because yeah, she probably didn't know. I mean, but still, but that's the know. only way she's going to learn if somebody brings her in and provides training to her and reprimands right. her about it. Yeah, I'm and sorry, the president but- had her had her hand raised. Okay, um, I just wanted to say that it, it was very nice that the people at that. Uh, medical facility were so considerate to um, do everything that um, that Cynthia wanted them to do. But you know that that's hardly what happens at most places. Mm -hmm. And so the reality is that you need to go prepared to fight for your rights instead of thanking people. I mean, I'm sorry. It just, it just doesn't happen um, that way in most cases. Um, and, you know, if if I could avoid a facility, I certainly would because it's, because you'll never get 
the um, opportunity, say, to walk around because they'll just about die if you're walking with your cane to just get some exercise in a facility. Um, I can't believe that this happened to me when I was a high schooler. You know, there wasn't anything that could stop me, right? I was in the hospital and I wasn't sick, sick, but I had to have some tests. And so I started walking the floor and I didn't carry a cane with me in those days because you just, it wasn't a time when you carried a cane anytime, but when you were on the street. So there I was strolling through the hospital hall in my, well, I must have had some real, not real clothes, but at least I didn't have a back out nightgown on. Um, but I was walking around and I would walk back and forth the length of the hall. And they're like, why are you doing that? I said, cause I can't stand just lying there. And, and, you know, at, at that point, they weren't as worried about liability as they are now, but good golly, you get someone who can't see in a nursing home or, or a, a medical facility who says, I just need to get up and walk. And it's bad enough for people who can see when they want to just put them in those wheelchairs and line them up in front of the TV. So can you imagine what it's like in most cases for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as well, I, I know, I know these gets were unrealistic, but I was trying to be educated. I mean, uh-huh. how how often would an employment special specialist <laughs> admit that he's going to look for other disabled people in the next job? You know, no, no, I'm just saying that, that, that the nursing home thing is just well, so, nursing, I, yeah. yeah, a lot of a lot of what we had tonight was unrealistic, uh, unrealistic, unrealistic, but we had to promote some ideas and thoughts and we got a lot of good input too so i think this was a success oh, yeah. rosemary martin has her hand raised. hi hello awesome skits guys these were really fun um i just had two quick things on the last one um one is if i i mean i'm young and haven't had to deal with too much but like certain places like when i i've had to get some dental work done and I found a few of the, you know, techs and people that I enjoy more. And I've just started to sort of, if they're available, just say, if it's possible, can I have them? Just so I don't have to have the fight every time or be uncomfortable when I'm already going to be uncomfortable as it is. Um, and I mean, I've, you know, I'll do my share of educating, but sometimes I find that if I just, you know, study people do it too. I've noticed like they ask mm-hmm. for the same people if they're regular. So that's sort of a way around some of this at points if you're lucky. And of course, sometimes they're not available or they're doing something else. But um, I actually got the idea because I heard someone scheduling and said, and can I have so-and-so? And I was like, oh, I, I didn't think about that ever before. I'm going to start doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other point, um, I, I'm sure, you know, this was extremely, you know, some of these were positive and it's not always that easy. But um, a few of my siblings, uh, my sister and a few of my sister-in-laws are physical therapists and I've talked to them a number of times about, you know, they had patients that are blind or visually impaired and um, one does home care and one's like in a rehab hospital and they've had situations where um, they were able to, you know, people automatically were like, oh, you must know a blind person by how they were like interacting and helping them. <laughs> um, and then others, you know, that my sister said without giving me details because of HIPAA and everything said, like, I have a few questions and what resources can I give them because they need services or things like that. So I think if, you know, when you do do that at, if, at points, 
you never know what then someone might learn and be able to take or bring back to, you know, their company as a whole. Um, but yeah, awesome job. Thanks guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The only thing I would add to that Rose is that, you know, sometimes you have to think of their, on the other side, they and that's what our responsibility is to try and educate them. And, you know, Lisa's comment about, you know, bringing out a sense of humor that helps make them feel comfortable. Um, cause I know it's happened to me where somebody all of a sudden they just happened to me last week, uh, as a medical appointment. And I said, Oh, well, I really can't see you very well at all. Um, and, and he said, Oh, but it's not in your chart. I said, it is, but it's not written very clearly on my medical chart. And so I had to kind of explain that. And, it, you know, and afterward he was fine, uh, but it really threw him for a loop. So I, sometimes I try to think about it from their side of it, too, is that they may not have met a blind person before. Uh, they're, your sisters and sister-in-law is very fortunate they have you, uh, that they can bounce these ideas off. But, you know, the general public may not have that. Uh, opportunity. So, um, you know, I, again, I think that's a very valid point that when we do that, um, and we, you know, educate others, we are helping not just ourselves, but many other people in the long run. Gives them a chance to learn. Anybody else have any other comments or are we getting close on time? We're at 45 now. So, you know. Oh, good. Okay, Doug. Well, I did not want to uh, end this session. Debbie had with- her hand raised earlier, oh. and she has her hand up again. If we could oh, just Debbie, take her comment. Yeah, quick, Debbie. <laughs> okay. Uh, one quick thing back on the bus scenario. I always remember a mobility instructor telling me that um, you should, when you go to a bus like that, you should ask them what the bus is. Not not say, is this bus ah. so-and-so? Because they could not maybe not understand you and tell you one thing and it not be the right thing and you get on the wrong bus and you, you know, that one. Um, the other quick thing is I'm usually really good at the uh, humor and having a lot of fun when silly things happen. But one day I lost my cool. I was at, in the metro system in D.C., I was just going to get on an escalator and I'm very short, which some people probably already know that. And this woman came and pulled me up under my Mm. arm that my feet almost left the ground. And I just, I lost it because it was such an unsafe situation. And I just turned to her and I said, don't you ever do that again. You know, I was just, Outrage. That's when I, the time I lost it. So just a couple of little, couple of little things. And the only other person that has their hand up who hasn't had an opportunity to speak is Kathy Gerhardt, if you have time. Sure. I just wanted to really quickly say that this was really um, entertaining and informative. And I think you Pennsylvania players should go on the road and uh, I'd like to book you for AAVL or maybe some, <laughs> maybe some other spots because it was really very good. And that um, Cynthia should get a Academy Award a, a award for the <laughs> lady in the hospital <laughs> and the other. And it, but everybody did a wonderful job. Thank you. <laughs> well, that. Thank you, Kathy, because that is exactly how I wanted to end it up with a round of applause for our PCB Always on Prime Time players. Yeah!
Thank you, Doug. I appreciate that. And I apologize for all the problems tonight. Well, we thank you, Julian, and the rest of the Vision Loss team for your excellent lessons in in assertiveness. I think that would be the safest thing to call it. 